0: For CJSR, FM 88.5. My name is Matt Hergie. The 2013 Municipal Election in Edmonton will take place on October 21st, 2013. That's this coming Monday, only three days from today. On that day, eligible citizens from across the city will head to the polls and cast their vote to elect 12 ward councillors and one mayor to take the reins of city council for the next three years. It's a big deal. The city of Edmonton has an annual operating budget of more than $1.9 billion that's used for everything from road maintenance to civic programs to public works projects to the building of community rec centers to police services. The list goes on and on. And the people that Edmontonians elect on Monday to City Council will not only be responsible for administering that budget, but they'll also be in charge of, quote, providing a focus to the city's efforts to deliver the greatest value of services and infrastructure that are most important to Edmontonians, while also managing the opportunities and challenges of our ever-changing city. That's from edmonton.ca. But throughout the course of all the door knocking, all the community forums, and all the election promises, we've noticed something. We've noticed that more than a few community members still have pressing questions for the candidates running for mayor.
1: What is their vision for the city? Why are they running for mayor? What about all of the potholes? What about urban sprawl? How will they stand up for the interests of post-secondary institutions in the city? What about the city's most marginalized groups? How will you fight? for a more sustainable city.
0: And, well, we had questions of our own.
1: How have special interest groups influenced the course of the election? What are the causes of the election apathy? How are campaigns financed?
0: On this episode of the CJSR edition, we're hitting the campaign trail. We brought the three leading candidates of this year's mayoral election, Kerry Diet, Don Iveson, and Karen Libovici into our studios and asked them a series of pertinent questions that we solicited from our listeners and our team of producers. Their answers were enlightening. And we hope that after you listen to this two-hour special edition of the CJSR edition, that you'll be better poised to make a decision on who to vote for on election day. And maybe, just maybe, learn a little bit more about the inner workings of our municipal government. I should interrupt here and note that we attempted to contact the other three candidates to request an interview, but unfortunately didn't receive a response. Anyway, it's the CJSR edition. This week, we proudly present Edmonton Election 2013. 2013. Fade down that music,
2: bring in the candidates. Sure, I'm Karen Leibovitchi, and I'm running for mayor of this great city.
3: Yeah, I'm Kerry Deott, longtime journalist, uh, came out here in uh, 1985, fell in love with the city, and here I am now running for mayor. Well, I'm Don Iveson, uh,
4: and now I'm running for mayor of Edmonton, and so I'm glad to be here to answer your questions. Let's Go. go.
1: Question one. Why do you want to be the mayor of Edmonton?
3: Kerry Diot. Well, I, I think that uh, the city is looking for a new direction. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people uh, prior to to uh, deciding to run for mayor and uh, just felt that uh, we're, we're heading down a slippery slope. Everybody's talking about debt right now, uh, the, the situation in the U.S. It's quite, uh, it's quite alarming. And what I found uh, that uh, there's, a, there's a fair bit of out-of-control spending at City Hall, everything from the arena, which is too much money, to a billionaire, to... All kinds of pet projects. I just felt that uh, while I could have uh, chosen to do one more term as a as a as a counselor, and I think I would have had an excellent uh, uh, chance of repeating. Uh, I just thought that uh, people are asking for a new direction. They're uh, they're very hungry. That the issues that we've been finding at the doors are uh, fix the roads, our basic infrastructure, and our and our uh, sewer systems that that you know is flooding people's basements, and uh, Get the debt under control. Uh, do not hike taxes beyond the rate of inflation, and people are still smoking mad at the arena deal. Now, I believe in the downtown arena, the vision of it, but it's a very bad deal for taxpayers, um, and I'm hearing that resoundingly. Uh, we're essentially borrowing $542 million uh, for, a, for a billionaire's play palace. Um, I, I I would have supported it if, if we would have had things like profit sharing, but here we have a, a situation with an arena that is... Uh, you know, we own it, we build it, we finance it, we don't get a cent of profit from it, and we don't uh, we don't even get naming rights to our own rink. And the, the final insult to injury is that we will have to pay $2 million taxpayers to advertise in our own arena. That's just not a good deal. As mayor, I will say that if this thing goes over budget, no more tax money to a billionaire. Don Iverson.
4: Well, Edmonton is on a a pretty spectacular trajectory right now, actually. I think... You know, I've been lucky to be a part of leadership in the city for the last six years, and six pretty remarkable years. We've made some big decisions that have moved the city forward uh, with respect to uh, airport closure and redevelopment, uh, with respect to building LRT and recreation centers and libraries, and some basics too. We've made some progress on neighborhood uh, rehabilitation, and contrary to popular belief, we are investing more in roads. It's just that the, the backlog is so big from so much neglect going back to to the 90s that uh, it is going to take us a few more years to get fully caught up on that. Uh, and we're making upgrades to our, our drainage system too because of the storms that we're seeing and the flooding that people are experiencing, which is heartbreaking. So there's uh, a lot of work behind us, uh, but a lot more work to go as well, and uh, the right leadership and positive leadership is needed in our city in order to help get us there. And So I see work to do around uh, continuing to steward our infrastructure better, making sure that this inheritance, this $35 billion worth of stuff that the city builders who came before us left to us uh, gets its due, gets looked after, and doesn't get run down again. So uh, stewardship of infrastructure, and that's how you prevent potholes in the long term, uh, is important to me. It's one of the reasons why I'm running for mayor. It's one of the reasons why I ran for city council in 2007. I also see some work to do in our region where there's a lot of unfinished business about improving cooperation between us and our neighbors, uh, chances to work together on service delivery for things like transit. So we're going to see things like a, a smart card in the next few years for transit. So uh, transit riders can move seamlessly across uh, all of the transit systems in our region, but that's a that's just one example, one that I was involved in as chair of the regional transit committee, for example, of the kind of um, progress we can make when we uh, work together collaboratively and in a spirit of diplomacy in the region. That's my specialty, uh, and I think there's a lot more work to do in the region for us to be able to reach our potential, answer long-term questions about job growth and where that's going to happen, infrastructure growth where that that's going to go, uh, population growth and where that's going to go, and then once you've settled all of those things in the region, you can start to look at things like agricultural land preservation in in the counties for the long term for food security. So there's a lot of work to do, whether it's infrastructure, the region, or you know a bunch of other things about housing choice um, and developing the airport lands properly doing better at infill, uh, transportation transportation choice around uh, completing the LRT network within a reasonable period of time. Um, so there's a ton of work to do, and I, I see that uh, laid out ahead of the next council, and I feel I have an understanding of the issues and uh, passion for the city and uh, the skills to bring a council together and work with our colleagues at the region, work with our colleagues in Calgary, work and work with the province and the federal government to, uh, to build the kind of Edmonton that we've all dreamed of. Karen Libavici.
2: My motivation is I've uh, been working 12 years now on city council to get this, the city to the point where it is now. We have a great entrepreneurship um, esprit de corps. We have uh, also uh, a momentum and an excitement that's really tangible and I felt that, uh, it, that we need to keep that momentum going, and I didn't see that there were any others that were able to do the job. Uh, the job of mayor is a very complex job. The city of Edmonton is a $3.5 billion corporation, 12,000 employees, and at the end of the day, if you don't have a council that's cohesive, uh, then our city will stall. We can't afford to let our city stall. We need to ensure that our city is, um, is uh, seen as a place that's open for business, that is prosperous, that is welcoming, and that is a place that people want to come to live, work, play, um, and invest in. When I, uh, when I r- realized, when I knew that the mayor was stepping down and there was a 50% turnover on council. Uh, I um, believe that uh, my skills in bringing people together is going to be key to ensuring that our city keeps moving forward.
1: Question two. What is your vision for the city?
4: Don Iverson. I would like to see in nine years, you know, a region that's working together a lot more closely, a lot more meaningful collaboration on things like economic development, uh, waste management in the region, joint delivery of more transit service, uh, so I'd like to see that regional collaboration happening much more fully. I'd like to see a thriving downtown with an arena that we built on time and on budget, and uh, that is not just bringing people downtown for sports but is att- and concerts, but is attracting businesses to locate downtown so that there are more jobs downtown, which supports demand for uh, residential development downtown and in the uh, older parts of the city. And uh, so I'd like to see that booming downtown alive and well, uh, and, and that by that point, everyone looks back and says, okay, the arena deal wasn't perfect, but it was good for the city, and we've got a return on investment here with a thriving downtown. And I'd like to see it all tied together with uh, an LRT system that, you know, nine years from now, I'd like to see us uh, running the train from Millwoods to downtown and that we're, you know, in construction uh, to get it out to um, to West Edmonton Mall and in construction to extend it north from, um, from the airport redevelopment site up into the northwestern part of Edmonton. And I'd like to know that we have uh, plans in place and the support from the province and the federal government to complete the entire LRT network uh, by 2030. Um, so those are a few of the things that I'd like to see. But well, I guess one other thing I'd like to add is, is that I'd like to see that we've made uh, considerably more progress on the 10-year plan to end homelessness and that we have also begun to make uh, meaningful, measurable progress on reducing poverty in Edmonton, uh, because there are still uh, too many people, and disproportionately, they are Aboriginal Edmontonians and uh, immigrant and refugee Edmontonians who do not get to participate as fully in this in the prosperity of living in Edmonton as the dominant culture does. And I would like to see uh, all Edmontonians included in the prosperity and success of the city. And so I've talked about. Um, elevating some of our existing poverty work to a mayor's task force on poverty elimination within a generation. And so it won't be, the work won't be done by then, but it will be well underway with the support um, of the provincial uh, government, especially, uh, in making that happen.
3: Kerry Diot. Very good question. I'm, I'm asked that a lot. My, my vision for the city of Edmonton is to make everyday life better for Edmontonians. And I'm getting basically the—we've the, uh, the, the, uh, done a lot of door-knocking, my team, and uh, the, the message at the doors is exactly that. It's, it's all about the debt. It's about taxation. It's about the arena, and it's about fixing our core infrastructure and making life better. For instance, um, the, the roads are disastrous. In this city, and that's so. My my vision is the vision of many Edmontonians. My opponents have different visions. Uh, My female opponent, who's a city councillor, has uh, wants to continue the uh, along the ways of uh, the current mayor, Stephen Mandel, and continue spending and debt. Um, My uh, my main uh, male opponent is uh, he has uh, a vision for a greener city. He has a a vision for uh, more more debt. And, and taxes, and I, 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 I wrestle a little bit when, when there's no price tag attached to it. It's very nice to talk about um, more of this and more of that, but somebody's got to p- pay the piper. And, you know, uh, as uh, students are probably... Uh, one of the people who know most about debt and the, and the fears of debt, and I think that that is uh, that is such an issue for everybody because it's it's students who are going to be, who are going to pay off uh, be stuck with paying off this debt as we continue to rack it up.
0: Well, then let's talk about debt and finances in general because I feel like that's a point where you have differentiated yourself from your opponents on the fiscal
3: spending front. What are your perspectives on that? Well, you know, just. Uh, <clears throat> When you look around the, the the world right now, you look at what's happening in the United States. You look at what's happened in the United States prior to this, where you've got cities going bankrupt. You look at the uh, situation in Europe, where had where you had countries going bankrupt. It's it's uh, top of mind for many people, and I am not saying, for instance, that the city's debt is uh, is uh, equates to Detroit's debt because we know Detroit went bankrupt. But uh, we, we came up with a little slogan that uh, somebody from the U of A actually gave us. They said, try this slogan on DIOT or Detroit. And we kind of chuckled at it and said, well, we've already got slogans. But you know, that's a good talking point. Let's get people talking about the debt because a lot of people didn't realize that the debt has gone from $400 million uh, about 10 years ago to uh, fast approaching $3 billion. Uh, you compare that with the city of Toronto that is uh, the city proper has about 2.8 million residents. Their debt is only $3.7 billion, which is high enough. Well,
0: then what trajectory should we be taking in balancing spending with uh, taxes?
3: That's a good question. I'm, I'm asked that frequently. What we've got to figure out is what is a want and what is a need, and right now, obviously the needs are some of those g- fixing up our foundations and making sure that we don't plunge into debt to the point where we uh, we don't have money for other good social programs. Uh, it's 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 a wake-up call, and uh, we have to go through a long list. We've got about $4 billion worth of projects that are in the hopper. People are, you know, everything from rec centers to buying more parkland to various projects, and as mayor, I'll have to sit down with the new city council and say, okay, what what can we do to now what does it want what is a need and because we certainly know that the citizens uh, vision of, of uh, needs are those core services that we've got to get right and also the uh, holding the line on taxes the rate of inflation you uh, I've had I've had people crying at the door saying please if you can do anything could you please hold it down I don't get a five percent wage hike every year um, again as students you, you know the uh, the kind of uh, the crippling uh, nature of debt and uh, that's what I say as mayor we hold our tax hikes to no more than the rate of inflation which is about 2% right now because that's what people I mean people are not getting 5% hikes in their income before
0: I move on I want to try to nail that down what in your opinion is a want that we want right now that uh, we can't afford
3: well, it is a, quite a long list. I'll, I'll use one example right there. You look at rec centers. Um, we used to, 10 years ago, before uh, this current regime took over, we would go and... Uh, go to uh, charitable groups and partner with them, whether it's the YMCA or the Kinsmen, And we built the, uh, the or I wasn't on council at the time, but the council of the day built the uh, the downtown Wheaton uh, YMCA for a, a total investment of about $4 million. And then somewhere along the line, 2003, 2004, they got it in their heads that, well, let's just go it alone. So uh, the first estimate on, on going it alone with the rec center was Terwilliger Rec Center. The first cost came in at about $50 Million dollars and everybody was shocked. Oh my goodness, fifty million—that's a lot of money. Now we know that that wound up being almost 170 million dollars, and uh, we cannot. That is, that is something that's uh, other neighborhoods now want. We have to partner with. We have to get back to partnering with with charitable organizations. You look at right here at the U of A with the uh, the Go Center, with a, a world-class uh, a basketball basketball facility and volleyball and gymnastics, and that was a four partnership between the university, the city, the province, and, and you know, it, it is working out well. We've got a lot of bang for the buck for just over $40 million. So we've got to, we've got to work together to, to cover those kinds of costs, not try to go it alone. It would be like going it alone on the LRT. We, we would go broke. And we don't want to see that. And we, I, I truly believe that we have to keep this city affordable for people to live in it. Uh, I know my own sister had uh, an issue. Uh, she was working in Calgary for the longest time, and she had to leave. She couldn't afford to live in that city. She, she's moved back to a smaller community in Ontario. And I, I don't want to become that city. Karen Leibovitchi.
2: Well, sure. Um, I think this election is a a great opportunity to put forward different ideas, different thoughts, um, and to generate discussion. And uh, in the past, the elections have had a 33% voter turnout. Uh, I'm anticipating that's going to be much higher um, people have uh, choices that are in front of them. Uh, the choice that I'm putting forward is, uh, uh, I believe, a positive choice. It's a choice that says that we need to continue our momentum, we need to take care of city business, and we also need to ensure that Edmonton is a home for all. Uh, and that um, if, you, if um, we want to ensure that Edmonton doesn't stall or fall behind, then uh, I'm that positive choice.
0: What differentiates you from the other candidates? My final question, I promise.
2: (laughs) No problem. Well, what differentiates me from the others is I have a proven track record. I'm a doer. Uh, If you look at um, any of the positions that I've held, uh, there are initiatives and there's actions that have been taken to change whatever I was involved with and to move things forward. Uh, I... um, I strongly believe that uh, we can have, you know, a, a vision or on a piece of paper, but if you don't know how you're going to get that vision enacted, then it's a piece of paper that sits on a shelf. Uh, and I've seen that happen too often in government, where we, there's all kinds of grandiose plans and two years later, we're in the same discussions about how are we going to do this, and is it the same issue? And then there's another, you know, report that gets onto a shelf. I'd like to move us past that, and that's what differentiates me from the others, and is that I have the experience, the leadership uh, abilities, um, and uh, the track record that shows that I'm a doer.
1: Question three. If you were elected mayor, and after your tenure was over, what will your legacy be?
2: Karen Libavitschi. My legacy, I hope, is that we are finally recognized as the capital city of this province; that we are world-renowned for the um, the fabulous um, work that goes on in this city, uh, and that we uh, also get the credit for all of the fabulous um, things that happen in this city. There are many times when you look at the Fringe Festival, for instance, we were the first to start. Uh, and um, right now, nobody knows that we were the first to start or that we've got the best Fringe Festival <laughs> ever. Uh, and also, I'd like to, um, to, to have um, the recognition that Edmonton has remained a welcoming place I call it that Edmonton is a home for all. We have spent a lot of time on our physical infrastructure. I believe that in the next um, eight years, two terms, that what we need to do is focus more on our social infrastructure. Uh, Recently, I put out an announcement uh, about uh, establishing a Mayors Initiative on diversity and inclusion because I felt it was important that we look at what we can do with the city of Edmonton to welcome the many newcomers that we have and those that don't have the opportunities that many of us have had uh, in order to achieve our our goals and our aspirations and our dreams. We're known, I believe, as a city of opportunity, a city of dreams, Uh, but we have to jealously guard that. And one of the ways I believe in doing that is by having this mayor's initiative.
0: Why, you talked about getting credit for who we are. Why do you feel like we don't get that credit?
2: I think we've been um, very shy about uh, who, uh, who we are and, and what makes Edmonton tick. Uh, I, I think also that um, we uh, have not been very good at promoting ourselves. Uh, and we need to get much better at that. Uh, Last year, I was president of a national organization, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, and I had an opportunity to travel across Canada as well as internationally, representing Canada, but also representing Edmonton. Uh, And when I said to people, you know, this is where I'm from, I, I'd get the, uh, the eyebrow raised <laughs> and the, the quizzical look, and the question would be, so it's, so you mean you're close to Toronto? Well, no, that's not what I mean. So we need to get much better at promoting ourselves. We also have many people who have come to Edmonton, especially in the last 10 years, that have great connections um, back to the countries that um, they've left, whether it's Africa, whether it's East Asia, whether it's um, uh, Latin America, uh, South America. And uh, we need to utilize those networks to promote us as well uh, on an ongoing basis. Kerry
3: Diot. Well, I think that it would be a legacy of uh, of getting things back on the rails to the point where we are we are not uh, spending recklessly. We are not spending on projects that are visionary but but pipe dreamish, and get us back get us back on track so that we can afford our foundations. We saw what happened uh, throughout the world. We see that what's happening now, and we have to be on solid ground. Of course, I want to grow this city, but we have to do it with an eye toward uh, toward the bottom line because, uh, it, it does not work if we are becoming a city that's unaffordable. It's, I want to make this city, uh, more solid on its, on its foundations. You don't go out, uh, and, uh, buy a, buy a house and, uh, put in hardwood floor when your roof is leaking. And, uh, you know, again, we, uh, we, are, we have a pretty decent um, standard of living here, one of the, the best on the planet. I want to keep growing the city responsibly, and I, I want to keep students living in this city as far as, especially students who come here for their education. And in order to do that, we, we have to be we have to be mindful of the debt, and we have to make it affordable, and we, we have to, you know, this is a great city. It really is. It, it kind of ticks me off a little bit when people say, oh, we've got to be world-class. You know, damn it, we are world-class. We've world-class education, world-class culture, world-class parks, world-class medicine, and I want to keep that um, within everybody's, uh, with everyone's reach.
4: Don Iverson. I think what I would want to leave um, behind is an even stronger sense of confidence. I think that's Mayor Mandel's greatest legacy, actually, is that he's made it okay for Edmontonians to be confident about the future of our city. He has inspired us to want to reach further and for Edmonton to be a globally competitive city, uh, one that can attract and retain the best and brightest people, uh, that can compete for um, the kind of businesses that are going to grow in the 21st century, um, You know, the new kinds of businesses, the innovation that's going to come out of our post-secondary institutions and out of... Um, uh, incubators like Startup Edmonton downtown. So I think that uh, he's he's inspired us to want to reach further, and I want to have reached further, and for Edmontonians to be fiercely proud of this place. And by the time my kids are, are deciding where they're going to grow up, where they're going to raise their families, that they would never think twice about Edmonton as the place to do it uh, because by the time, you know, in 15 or 20 years, they look back, they say Edmonton is the best place to be.
1: Question four. If you were elected mayor, what is the first thing that you would do in office?
4: Don Iverson. The first thing I would do in office is work very, very hard to build personal relationships with each one of the new city councillors, uh, and then to work on building a team dynamic among that uh, group of returning and new city councillors. Because that's the most important leadership the mayor provides, is to um, is to the council team. and. So I think building those relationships right off the bat, and, and that's, that involves a lot of active listening to what people each felt was the basis of their election, the mandate that they bring, and understanding what their strengths are, and if they'll open up about them, also what their weaknesses are and where they could use development, where they could use mentorship, uh, where maybe they could learn from another counselor or from a former counselor. You know, I, I want to build a really strong team that's going to make good long-term decisions for the city of Edmonton. And so the first order of business is to is to build those relationships and build that team.
0: What's the second order of business then beyond the the team building of uh
4: of the council? I think the the big priority uh, right after the election is to get through the budget, but um, <clears throat> and that's that's an important learning exercise for the new council and a chance to feel each other out. So I would say the budget, but I, th- I think if your question's a little broader than that, I think the top priority for the next mayor uh, should be, and it would be with me, is um, working on the regional file as i was describing earlier where we've got some of this unfinished business we've got unlevel playing field in the region and that needs to be leveled out so that we can um, so we can compete fairly and so that we can make better long-term decisions as a region and so that in coalition we can get the support that we need from the province and from ottawa to support um the whole Edmonton region's growth and prosperity, because we're really stronger together, and we've been played off successfully against each other for a long, long time, and we need to move past that so that we can even have the same strength that Calgary has, because Calgary is sort of one city unto itself for the most part, and, and they've been stronger because of that, so we need to find that strength so that we can hold our own. And then ideally, we got to build those relationships with Calgary, too, so that we can uh, really start to push a more urban agenda for uh, Alberta.
0: What do you foresee are the biggest impediments to that uh, community building within the region?
4: There's a lot of history in the region um, and a lot of strong personalities, but um, I have the credibility because I've worked with these folks and listened and understand the history and understand why some of the, some of the old grudges are there. And um, so, for example, you know, I talk about um, regional development cooperation, whereas one of my competitors talks about creating a regional development authority. And it's a very subtle thing in the language, but this is part of the fine art of diplomacy in the region, is that if, if you talk about imposing an authority on the region, people will clam up because they're used to having their own autonomy and you have, to, um, you have to respect that. And you have to say, you have to invite people into coalition rather than impose coalition on people. And so, <clears throat> so understanding the nuances of even the language that's used is very, very critical to, to finding success in the region because um, people feel very, very deeply about their autonomy uh, in these communities and that needs to be respected. Karen Leibovici.
2: Um My first initiative um, is to pick up the phone, and that would be actually on the evening of the election, to all of the councillors, and um, uh, set up a time so that we could meet one-on-one so that we could start to build that sense of cohesion. Uh, and and without that, it's going to be very difficult for council to move forward on a lot of the plans that we've approved, a lot of our ten-year strategies that we're halfway through, and um, ensuring that we remain uh, the an economic hub for the city of Edmonton for the province as well. So when you uh, look at um, that uh, as being one of those um, first <laughs> initiatives, uh, you need to have established the relationship. and and that's what I plan to do, first and foremost. The second part of it is within three weeks, we're going to be into our 2014 budget. This is with brand-new councillors. Some may never have set foot in council chambers. You're going to need to have a strong mayor that can uh, shepherd uh, everyone through what can be a very div- divisive discussion. Uh, and again, it's, it's uh, working and, and mentoring in some cases some of those new counselors.
0: Do you feel like you're uniquely placed to build that cohesion and to build the relationships with other counselors? And yes. why?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, I have good relationships with uh, the six counselors that are are wanting to return to council, and I hope they do get elected. Uh, in my mind, they're they're great counselors, uh, and with some of the the new counselors, I do know some. I don't know all of them, uh, but I have a track record of being able to do that. Most recently, if you look at uh, my being able to bring together a 75-member board, um, which was the board that I chaired at uh, FCM, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, and that board was comprised of mayors and councillors and reeves and from across the country. We were able to come together in one voice, uh, and and have a unanimous resolution passed to put forward to the federal government, and it was really important to do that. And when you think of the fact that we had the largest municipality in the country sitting at the table, so Toronto, as well as some very, very small rural and uh, northern municipalities, that ability to bring consensus is, uh, is very important. Kerry Diot.
3: Well, I would go back to what got me there, and it will be the uh, the attention to the people's vision and the people's vision and and the people's uh, agenda. It, it, it certainly is keeping things on track, not not making uh, not raising taxes so that it's unaffordable for people here, uh, making sure that projects go ahead uh, on time and on budget, making sure to represent them as the arena deal goes ahead, so that uh, a billionaire does not get more. T- tax money if it goes over budget. Those sorts of things, I represent the people I listen. I think for the longest time people have, uh, one of the reasons that they don't vote and so many stay home is that they don't feel heard. Whether you go back to the airport debate, whether you whether you go to the arena debate, people, people are upset that they don't seem to have a voice. They're upset that a lot of these decisions have been made behind closed doors, in camera, where they don't have a choice. And, you know, this city has a long history of plebiscite. And, and I like that. That's that's kind of something that started in California, where you really have a, a, a personal say in big decisions. We've we've had those decisions in the past. That gives people a direct voice. Whether it's uh, in the past, we voted on everything from fluoridation to to uh, VLTs to building a, a, a complex that would have been a co- combination football stadium and hockey rink. And you know, for the most part, people choose wisely. Edmontonians are smart and. I I think that on those big ticket items, they should have—they should always have a plebiscite. I think they should have had a plebiscite both on the international, or sorry, the the downtown airport, and on the arena. As long as it's a nice, clear question, let the let the people decide. That's true democracy.
0: Break. This is the CJSR Edition's 2013 Edmonton Municipal Election episode. On this week's show. We're rooting through the rhetoric and looking past all that baby kissing of this year's municipal election in Edmonton. And we're asking each of the leading mayoral candidates a series of questions that we solicited from the citizens of Edmonton so that you can decide who to cast your vote for on October 21st. But before we go any further, we had a question of our own. Who's buying all those lawn signs? perhaps more broadly, how are municipal election campaigns financed in Edmonton? And what are the campaign financing regulations? CJSR's Roshni Nair has more.
5: Hey, did you know that Steven Mandel's 2010 mayoral campaign raised $710,000 in funds?
6: Wow, campaigns are expensive.
5: Running a municipal mayoral campaign can be a very expensive endeavor. Here at CGSR News, we dug up some facts to help you understand more about campaign financing.
6: Who can fundraise?
5: You have to be registered with the municipality as an official candidate in order to accept donations. Money can only be used for campaign expenses, and receipts are issued for every donation and obtained for every expense.
6: What is the highest amount somebody can donate? A
5: person, corporation, trade union, employee organization shall not exceed $5,000 in their contribution. The candidates themselves can contribute up to $10,000.
6: What if you go above and beyond the $5,000?
5: If you contravene this limit, you may be fined $5,000 as a person or candidate and up to $10,000 as a corporation, trade union or employee organization.
6: I want to donate to a candidate, but I don't have any money. What do I do?
5: Well, you can donate your own property or services for the benefit of their campaign. But if you're volunteering your time directly to perform those services, it doesn't count to their financial statement.
6: Is there anybody who cannot donate?
5: Yes. You cannot reside outside of Alberta or be an organization or trade union that doesn't exist. The City of Edmonton, a corporation controlled by the City of Edmonton, or even a non-profit that has received monies from the city cannot donate. Provincial corporations, the school board, a public post-secondary institution like the University of Alberta, or interestingly, Métis settlements, are also ineligible to make campaign donations.
6: What if you are independently wealthy and you are not interested in fundraising?
5: You can run on your own money, but only up to $10,000. And if this is the only money you're running on, you don't even have to disclose the amount of money you paid or list your campaign expenses. You tell the city that you've self-funded and you cannot accept a single campaign contribution from anyone else.
6: What happens if you are super popular, get a ton of donations, and have a surplus after the election?
5: Two things. You give the surplus to the municipality and they hold it in trust for you until the next election. If you file nomination papers for the next general election, you can use these surplus funds. If you decide not to run in the next election, these surplus funds get donated to a registered Albertan charity.
6: And what happens if you spend too much money and uh,
5: you are running a deficit? Basically, you have to eliminate it by getting more donations, and then redisclose your new financial statement. So candidates don't overspend.
6: What do you have to disclose?
5: For donations over $100, you need to provide the donator's name and address. For all donations under $100, you add it up and provide the aggregate sum. You need to disclose if you have a surplus from a previous campaign, and if you're providing your own out-of-pocket donations. You also need to provide a list of revenue and expenses.
6: And where did you get all this information?
5: It's part of the Local Authorities Election Act. You can find it online on alberta.ca, or contact Elections Edmonton at 780-442-VOTE, 780-442-8683.
1: Return. Question 5. Let's talk about growth. As the city continues to grow, different communities within Edmonton are developing their own unique characteristics. And the citizens of those unique communities have disparate needs. Do you perceive this as a challenge? What trajectory will this take in the future?
3: Kerry Diot. Well, I guess maybe the, the bigger question is people raise the issue of sprawl. Um, that's something that's come up in this in this campaign. I certainly don't think that uh, our problems with sprawl, uh, compared to some places in the U.S., where land is so cheap it just goes on and on and on, like Phoenix, for instance. However, I'm uh, I'm not a big fan of the, uh, the 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 idea that we should just simply gobble up land all over because my two opponents are very much in favor of annexation, and yet they will they will say, but uh, there's no there's no problem with sprawl. Um, Um, You know, you can't have it both ways. I don't see that we should be ticking off our neighbors and and stealing their land when... We have enough land right now when, when, you know, there's there's going to be, there's inevitably cities grow and in, inevitably we have certain annexation when it's needed, but right now we have more than enough land to service the needs of Edmontonians and, and taking over big hunks of it at, the, at a whim or I, I say we, we've got to get back to the table with some of our partners and, and say, okay, look, what really makes sense here? Should we take, is, does any of it make sense? Should we leave it with you? Um, should? we take a little bit and we've got to have that conversation you bottom line you've got to get along with your neighbors
0: it, correct me if I'm wrong annexation is a debate around revenue generation isn't it that
3: it's some of that um, I'm not convinced. For instance, I've I've met with some of our, our regional partners, and I'm not convinced from some of the figures they show that that grabbing up a bunch of their land is going to result in any big tax benefit. Don't forget, when we when we do go down that road, we have to start supplying the police stations, the fire stations, the uh, all of those facilities, and then people are they you know it's it's very very expensive, and uh, I think. But at the same time, we've got to have choice. We've got to the new neighborhoods that have. Been developed within the Edmonton's boundaries now are much more intense. They have the mixed-use housing. They've got apartments. They've got condos. They've got row houses. It's not the 70s anymore where it's uh, you've got your 150-foot lot and a and a yard so big that your kid's gonna cry because he's never gonna get finished cutting your lawn. So we are doing it in a better way. But I, I do get back to the fact that how much do we need? You know, it's um, I, th- I think we're good right now when our population swells. Much more, then we'll have that that conversation.
0: Well, what about our inner cities then? What do you, how do you approach a, sol- a solution to uh, relieving the ghettoization of our inner cities, specifically the Edmonton East End?
3: Yeah, well, that's that's an investment for sure. It certainly is. We've got to. One of the things that City Council has done, which I agree with, is that for some of the inner city, we've agreed that uh, there will not be any more social uh, housing or agencies put there because they've got their fair share, more than their fair share. So we have to we have to start looking at at making our. figuring out ways to, to get infill in into our mature neighborhoods, because that makes sense socially and fiscally. We've already got the infrastructure there. Now, am I in favor of, of some kind of... Um, uh, straight out out and out handouts to, to developers on that I don't think so but there's got to be a, a way to put incentives in there maybe some kind of a tax holiday where if you if you will do a, a house and uh, and uh, you know you'll renew in a neighborhood you'll get some kind of a tax break I, I would be open to, to discussing that and throughout any any part of the city in, in many ways it, uh, it it makes sense that if you've got the infrastructure we should uh, we should have de- where the infrastructure already is. Karen Libavici.
2: And again, I, I believe that a lot of that is related to balance and how do we balance what the um, expectations are and uh, what the realities are. Communities and neighborhoods do have their own characters um, that have developed over time. Uh, and so if you look at the character of a Glenora, uh, versus an Oliver, versus um, Belgravia, for instance. They all have their own distinct character. If you look at some of the newer neighborhoods, they're still developing their character. Uh, and um, at, at the base of it all, though, is, I believe, a, a fundamental uh, principle that seems to be a thread throughout, of, throughout um Edmonton and and, and talking to Edmontonians, and that's, we're a welcoming city, we're a city that uh, embraces uh, others who come to the city because many of us have come to the city from somewhere else, Um, going back to myself. 33 years ago, I came here. So many of us have made Edmonton our home. When you look at our ability to pull out volunteers for, uh, for games, for the sporting games, or for any other initiatives, if you look at our strong community uh, movement with the Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues, there's that common thread that I think holds all those parts together. And that's that thread of being uh, an Edmontonian, of being proud of being an Edmontonian, and recognizing that that means that we are a community that's knit together. So, yes, I think there'll be different characters within neighborhoods and also within some of our newcomer communities, uh, but a fundamental base of it is, um, is that Edmonton um, is, a, is a place that people feel comfortable in. Um, we don't have those cliques um, uh, that um, other cities have. So it's very easy for someone to come to the city and become involved in different organizations and different groups, uh, um, whatever they, they want to do. I struggle with that only
0: because uh, when you when you look at Edmonton's most marginalized communities, I don't think that thread, necessarily is there anymore, and you sort of look at the ghettoization of Edmonton's downtown east side.
2: And and that's an area that we need to focus on, and that's why I talked about our social infrastructure. Uh, We're not perfect. We're far from perfect. Uh, When I um, was the mayor's designate on the homeless commission, as well as when I was the, um, the council lead on the affordable housing initiative. One of the principles that was embedded in those two in- initiatives was that we would not be housing everyone who was disadvantaged in one spot, that we needed to ensure that people were able to be, um, find housing throughout the city. Because you're right, we don't want to create ghettos, and we need to move away from that. Uh, and, and that is a, a principle that we should hold to. Is there more that we can do with poverty elimination? Is there more that we can do with uh, ensuring that individuals with disadvantages become part of um, the fabric of Edmonton? Is there more that we can do in welcoming our new communities from other countries? Absolutely. And I believe that that's going to be a major focus in the next um, four to eight years.
0: How would you do that?
2: Well, I've, I've um, put forward the Mayor's Initiative on diversity and inclusion, and part of that is based on, it's easy for me to say this is what we should do, but if we can't demonstrate it in-house, if we can't demonstrate to others how you can do it, then it becomes words on a piece of paper. So, part of what we're looking at is to have mentorship and internship programs. Um, I've had some very, very preliminary discussions uh, with the uh, um, uh, Department of um, um, of uh, Extended um, uh, Education with um, um, and. Um, to look at how we can work together uh, so that uh, people can become more included. Uh, we also ha- I also have a proposal to set up a registry so that uh, you can have individuals, and yes, there are groups that do that, but what you would have is a registry that is a comprehensive registry of people who have skills with businesses who are looking for those skills. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's practical in the application because that's what it needs to be.
3: Don Iverson.
4: I think every city is like that. Um, every city has different neighborhoods and a diversity of choices of places to live and different characters in neighborhood. That's actually important for city building. If everything is exactly the same, then you're either gonna love it or hate it. And you're not gonna necessarily find different places in the city for people at different stages in their lives and with different tastes. And one of the challenges right now is that so much of the job growth in this region is out in the counties, in the industrial parks, and that's fine. But that's why I'm talking about the importance of things like Startup Edmonton and uh, a vibrant downtown so that, you know, if we can get some job growth in the core, that can support uh, more demand for residential units being constructed in either downtown in high density or in sort of low to medium density infill that we would see in some of the older parts of town. So I think choice is the key there. Um, but I think we it's not like we aren't building a great diversity of new kinds of neighborhoods around Edmonton uh, in, in the suburban areas. I think where we're struggling is to ensure that we're offering comparable choice um, for urban lifestyles closer into the And there are a lot of barriers to that uh, in terms of crumbling infrastructure that we're starting to reinvest in, transit connectivity, which we need to invest in further. Uh, School retention is a huge question mark because you'd think people would want to live next to a school in an older neighborhood, except everyone knows that it might not be there by the time your kids are in kindergarten. So we need some certainty around which schools might stay open to help catalyze redevelopment. And if we can solve some of those challenges in the next few years working together with school boards and with good long-term infrastructure planning. And I think that creates conditions for stronger uh, growth in the older parts of the city um, and that that's going to lead to a more balanced growth in the city as well.
0: I think uh, the caveat to that question is, and I think you alluded to it, but the ghettoization of the inner city has become an apparent problem, especially in the Edmonton downtown East End. How do you deal with that?
4: We uh, Council approved a moratorium on um, non-market housing, on the investment in non-market housing, which is to say social housing and, uh, um, and supportive housing for people coming off the street or dealing with addictions, because there is an over-concentration of that kind of housing in um, particularly the, the northern and northeastern parts of the core of our city, and that's not fair. It's not fair that those neighborhoods are overburdened. It's also not fair to all of us that there are so many people in that situation of need. So you need to take the long-term preventative approaches to try to reduce the numbers of homeless, to try to reduce the numbers of people whose mental illness isn't dealt with proactively and who wind up on the street, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, there's a social capacity building uh, that's part of the 10-year plan to end homelessness. It's part of a, uh, an effort to... Uh, eliminate poverty within a generation. And the provincial government needs to do a lot more around addictions and mental health. Um, So I think all of those things help reduce the supply of, uh, or uh, reduce the demand, I should say, for um, housing units like that, that can become over-concentrated in an area. But in the meantime, there's still so much need for that kind of housing the question is really should it be distributed around the city and i can tell you because some of those units exist in uh ward 10 and most people don't know that they're there but they're around century park and they're around southgate but they're not over concentrated in those neighborhoods and um, because they aren't you know, most people don't realize they're there and it doesn't cause any challenges for anybody. It's, it's a healthy place for people coming off the street to, to live and be because it's away from some of the street life influences that are, that uh, and where predators may prey on them, uh, and drug peddlers and others. So, um, so I think th- distributing that load but not then creating overconcentration problems somewhere else is the fine balancing act that we need to uh, that we need to work our way through, and it does require political leadership.
1: Question six. There is a stereotype of Edmonton being a city where young people come to receive a post-secondary education, but then, with very little to keep them here after the fact, they leave the city for opportunities elsewhere. How, as mayor, would you encourage young professionals to stay in the city? What is your plan to engage with young people?
2: Karen Leibovici. I have to give you just a little story. When my husband and I first came to to Edmonton, we came from Montreal. Um, where you have a 24-7 almost nightlife. <laughs> and we came, and I remember going downtown uh, Saturday night, and I don't know, maybe it was 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. We couldn't find a restaurant that was open. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we kind of wondered, well, you know, um, is that really what Edmonton is uh, is about? Edmonton is becoming more vibrant, in it's downtown, uh, but there's a long way to go. And that's one of the reasons that I did support the Arena and Entertainment District. Um, the closing of our municipal airport is also going to be pre- provide the, um, the population that's needed close to the downtown to reinvigorate the downtown. You need to have people in your downtown in order for the businesses to be there, the, the retail, the restaurants, um, all those uh, fabulous uh, kinds of venues that we want. Um, nightclubs. And so, uh, and so those are the ways that we're going to move forward in attracting people. We have a good quality of life here. We have a, a also a first-class um, education, uh, first-class um, first health care, which brings people to us. And our cost of living is affordable. I've been meeting more and more people who are coming uh, from Toronto, from Vancouver, uh, from Montreal um, because they can't afford to live there. And the jobs are here. Uh, And there's nothing right now that we're missing other than we can, I think, crank up our downtown uh, much more. uh, And that will come with time.
3: Kerry Diotte. Well you know I'm not convinced that that's happening I'm not convinced of the brain drain I, I think that you're always going to have some people who will have stars in their eyes for for going elsewhere if uh, if you are suddenly offered a job tomorrow at a radio station in New York City you might you might head there I mean of course but I think overall more people are staying here they're coming because this is the hottest economy in the country and this is where you you really can make uh, a, a great place to live and and make uh, better money and have a better lifestyle than anywhere you that's why people are pouring in here and I'm, I'm just simply not convinced that uh there's a huge problem with them saying no it's not good enough let's go somewhere else don iverson the
4: folks who graduate from our colleges and universities are one of our most precious resources. And some of them are going to go out into the world, and we want them to be great ambassadors of a city that they're really proud of having either lived in or been, you know, even born in. Um, and so we need everybody's experience at post-secondary to be positive not just at their university but that they feel welcomed by the city and that's one of the other um agendas within the city of learners thinking is that you know we need to celebrate this right um and So we need to send people away with positive experiences. And then I think if we're giving people positive experiences too, uh, you know, because there's good housing, there's good nightlife, there's good transit, uh, and there's good job opportunities afterwards, then those are all of the pieces of the puzzle that start to... uh, create conditions where people are gonna to wanna to stay. Either they get kinda of sucked into it or they just embrace it fully, especially if they've come here from somewhere else. So, you know, we, we I meet lots of people who came here for school and didn't expect to stay, and I take time to ask them, uh, what is it that got you to stay? And it's often uh, arts and culture scene here, which is uh, way bigger and, and, and more engaging than they th- would have thought. Uh, it's uh, job opportunity is a huge one. Uh, the affordability of housing compared to other Canadian cities. So we've got a lot of competitive advantages going for us. We just need to uh, more actively promote those uh, along with our post-secondary institutions uh, when people are making that decision about where they're going to put their newfound skills to work.
1: Question seven. In January 2013, a report solicited by the city of Edmonton was released by the Citizens' Panel on Edmonton's Energy and Climate Challenges. It set out a series of proposals all under the umbrella goal of managing the risk of climate change and becoming a low-carbon city by 2050. What do you think of this report? How do you plan on following through on it?
3: Kerry Diot. Well, you know, I think that... uh when it comes when it comes to issues like that the, the world is changing obviously people are much more concerned about the environment whether it be whether it be uh, the, how they how they get to work how they uh, whether they use plastic bags little things like that what kind of vehicles they drive and I, I, I think that something like that the world is changing and I, I I do not see that. I'm not into um, sort of a nanny state where we say, you know what, you're not going to be able to drive a car anymore. Uh, I, I believe that we need some balance in in methods of transportation. We need to spend money on roads and transit because it comes down to it comes down to choices again. Whether we whether we like it or not, uh, some people don't like it, but 80 percent of people drive their vehicles to work. I don't believe, as my opponent uh, does, uh, that. That uh, uh, it's sustainable to have one-car families in the city right now, and I don't think that it's it's the uh, it's the duty of a, a mayor and city council to say we're going to make it as rough on you to drive as we can. I think with choice, I think what what happens after a while is uh, when it gets more expensive to drive a car than it's worth, people will say, you know, I'm going to start taking transit more, and that I, th- I think we we obviously. Um, we have to. We, we are a cold city. You 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 can't take your your kid to hockey practice on the LRT. You may be able to go to a game and a football game and a hockey game and and uh, go out partying, but there's there's a harsh reality of this city that that we we are spread out. We are cold, and uh, people will come around. I mean, cars are greener and greener by the day. So I, I say we let uh, we let people make their free choices, and and people are going to choose. Uh, some measure of environmentalism.
4: Don Iverson. Well, I helped ensure that the report exists, because I lead the Council's uh, Environment Initiative, um, and I worked with David Kahane and the Alberta Climate Dialogue Group and the Center for Public Involvement, which is um, a partnership between the city and the Faculty of Extension here at the U of A, um, to do this um, deliberative democracy exercise with a representative but random sample of Edmontonians with a diverse set of views about climate change and about energy and about uh, politics in general. And it's remarkable that after six weeks of working together, um, armed with all of the facts and a chance to debate them thoroughly, they came to an overwhelming consensus in this report that um, what Edmonton should be doing, regardless of what you think the cause of climate change is, whether it's man-made or not, they said there is value in looking to reduce our dependence on non-renewable energy, because there is a strong business case. Because right now we're kind of at the mercy of um, of fossil fuel pricing, um, and if we don't explore alternatives, then things could get very, very expensive for Edmontonians in the future. So, some people are motivated by. Um, reducing the risk of climate change. Other people were motivated by reducing our exposure to um, high energy prices in the future. And we've seen what's happened with, ener- with electricity prices, for example, over the last few years. And so people are thinking, how do we make sure that it's still affordable to live here, that, that energy costs don't become an overwhelming part of any household budget? So really interesting thinking went into this report. And I think there are some good recommendations that we can start to move on in the short term. But a lot of what's in there is sort of long-term and strategic, and does require leadership from the province and the federal government too. So I think the first thing we need to do with this report is make sure that it's shared with provincial and federal decision-makers, because I think Edmontonians have come to a remarkably strong consensus that there is uh, a strong case for taking action to reduce our fossil fuel use, uh, which helps us do our part uh, for climate change, but also reduces our risk in the long-term around just the cost of doing business. Karen Leibovitchi.
2: I think it's a good report. It's a very high-level report, uh, and I'm not sure that all the specifics that are in there are um, are going to get us to what our end goal is. I was uh, chair of the Green Municipal Fund, uh, which is a national fund, $550 million. Um, and what we did was we allocated uh, grants for study programs for um, projects as well as we gave loans in various areas uh, to get to exactly the point that you're talking about. And I know that there uh, are examples throughout Canada that we could utilize very effectively. Uh, I would like to see some of the ways that we can become um, more carbon neutral, uh, accelerated. I don't believe that trading credits is the best way to do that. I would actually like to see action. Uh, and one of the areas that I was um, um, a, a, a prime uh, mover in was around our LED lights. And in fact, what um, happened was out of a... Um, Uh, out of an inquiry that I made uh, because it was happening in my community and actually Councilor Iveson became part of that inquiry as well is we were able to uh, move the agenda forward so that LED lights are now the standard uh, throughout the city and that was part of a movement that's called the Dark Sky Movement which I think is a very interesting movement and we're starting to move towards that direction so I uh, I um, think that the way we green is a a great document. Uh, And again, at the end of the day, uh, my uh, greatest concern is when we have great documents, but we don't put them into action. And I'm more action-oriented, and I would like to see us move quicker on some of the, uh, the areas where we can be very effective.
0: If you could identify a couple in particular that you would want to move on?
2: Well, I think one is in terms of our own energy efficiency. And ensuring that we, as a city, uh, are um, are walking the talk. It's fine to say that we want to become. Uh, more green, but at the end of the day, if we're not turning off lights in our own buildings, then, you know, that's an obvious example. Another is with regards to transit. We had to push very, very hard, and it was the mayor who pushed very, very hard in order to um, have some um, um, gas-powered vehicles, Um, and I think we can look at the, the electric as well. Um, another area I think we can look at, and I'm not even sure if it's in the report, uh, I can't remember honestly, uh, is because it was a very thick report, is around electric chargers uh, for, uh, for the electric cars. Uh, Quebec actually has put forward an initiative, the province of Quebec, um, that they will work with the municipalities to develop that. I know a small municipality like Summerside PEI has uh, electric chargers um, for the cars. So those are the kinds of initiatives that we can work in conjunction, especially the last one with EPCOR, and start to put it into place.
0: What about urban sprawl? Because that's something that has come up time and time again over the course of this election, and it's something that separates some of the candidates. I'm curious what your thoughts would be.
2: Sure. Uh, And my thoughts are it's about balance. We have more than 20,000 people a year moving into Edmonton. Some do move out, but more than 20,000 a year. Uh, and next year, actually, we're projected to be much more than that. I would rather have them live in Edmonton than on the outskirts, Or, in fact, um, new neighborhoods that are being built in our neighboring communities have much lower density than what we're building within our borders. I believe that we need to build inwards, we need to build upwards, and we need to build outwards. Uh, Our new neighborhoods are built to 30 to 50 percent multifamily, much more than the majority of neighborhoods within um, the Inner Ring Road, if you want to use that as, as the boundary. The biggest difficulty we have is when we get proposals coming forward to us where a single-family lot is either being divided into two much smaller homes or into a duplex. And I believe that we have to stand firm, um, uh, especially is that we have to stand firm in, in approving those. In some rare instances, might not make sense. Um, for whatever the reason. But in the majority of cases, um, if people, if we want to encourage infill, then that's where the infill is going to occur. The other part of the, just going back to the arena and entertainment district, is we have a lot of empty parking lots. uh, And those parking lots will be built on. And so that'll help also with infill within the downtown area. And of course, Blatchford, where uh, all of that is zoned as, will be zoned as multifamily.
1: Break.
0: This is the CJSR edition. The candidates are the people whose smiling faces you'll see on lawn signs during the election. But they aren't the only ones grappling to have a voice in who you vote for. CJSR's Chris Chang Yen Phillips has been trying to untangle why some special interest groups have outraged Albertans while a slew of other groups have become local celebrities. Here's Chris with more. In
7: April this year, an anonymous source leaked a grainy video of a closed-door meeting among some of Calgary's real estate developers. A grainy video worthy of media attention should be enough to make anyone caught on film gulp, and in this case the footage made some Calgarians furious. The founder of Shane Homes, Cal Wenzel, was rallying his fellow housing developers to pour fountains of money into the upcoming municipal election and kick out anti sprawl candidates on city council. In the video, Wenzel tells the audience that he and other developers had already doled out $1.1 million in donations to the Conservative Manning Center and Manning Foundation. That should be enough, he suggests, to get Preston Manning's think tank and policy institute on board to help defeat city council members on, quote, the dark side, unquote. If you haven't heard of the Manning Center or the Foundation, the gist is that in the years since he left the leadership of Canada's Reform Party, Preston Manning has helped establish these organizations to offer research and guidance to strengthen Canada's Conservative parties and leaders. Their new Municipal Governance Project is aiming to color Canada's local politics a little bluer by offering training and guidance to right-leaning candidates. At least five of this year's City Council candidates have received training through the program. When this video was published, Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi accused Wenzel of admitting that the developers in the Manning Center had collaborated to severely overstep election finance rules. Individuals and organizations are only allowed to donate up to $5,000 to a candidate in any year, after all. No charges have been laid in this case, though. And while this wealthy group of developers may well be violating the spirit of the law, I wonder how much of the backlash has come from a feeling that this amount of influence is unfair, and how much has come from ideological opposition to their ideas. This year, special interest groups have also stepped up in Edmonton to test candidates' support for queer issues, sustainable urban agriculture, and arts and culture. Several have published the results of surveys they sent out to the candidates. One you've probably heard of is Yuri Winch's highly visible Vote Zombie Wall campaign, focused on keeping out the hordes by combating sprawl. Winch has popped up at election events all over town with little controversy. So have the leaders of Activate Ed, a youth-led group endorsing progressive candidates. Activated has gone beyond just endorsing strong candidates with their values, they're also volunteering and door-knocking. And in fact, both Yuri Winch and the Activated folks appeared on my home show, Terra Informa. Each of these groups has advanced a special interest by lending resources and limelight to candidates or highlighting their credibility on certain issues. And we have a word for that, civil society. Civil society groups, such as think tanks, churches, blogs and nonprofits, carve out an important niche of the public conversation, outside of government and business. Civil society is a vital part of becoming informed and active in negotiating decisions in a democracy, whether we're debating suburban growth or clandestine chickens. Maybe rather than trying to shame civil society groups out of town, it'd be more productive to make sure that they're transparent in their activities and accountable to our elections laws.
5: This is
0: the CJSR edition. Stay tuned.
1: Return. Question eight, other than Edmonton, what is a city that you are really drawn to or think is a good role model for Edmonton to take inspiration from in the future?
6: Karen Libovici.
2: You know, I think every city has difficulties. <laughs> and and uh, the the key is going to be to try to not repeat <laughs> what some of the issues are in the other cities. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you look at um, Montreal, uh, Toronto, um, Ottawa, there's difficulties. And, yes, those were um, forced amalgamations, but the model, I'm not sure, works there. Uh, if you're looking at the GVR, GVRD, they've got issues as well. Um, Is there a perfect model? No, but then again, you know, in some respect, democracy isn't perfect either. (laughs)
3: Don Iverson.
4: Can I answer with two? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, there are two cities that I'm really keeping an eye on right now that I think apply, uh, that have lessons that apply to Edmonton. One is Austin and what they've been able to do as a capital city, uh, university town, uh, and a vibrant arts community, how they've been able to define themselves and differentiate themselves within Texas. I think Edmonton has a lot of similar things going for it, and some of the things that they've done uh, with entrepreneurship there too, uh, to catalyze creativity uh, in the arts and in the in, um, in the social sciences, but especially in business, I think Edmonton could learn a lot from what's happened in Austin. And the other the other one I like is I just I love Chicago. It has, um, it, it has figured out how to be that kind of globally competitive city without losing touch with its um, humility. So it's, it's not a place that takes itself too, too seriously. People there are really, really friendly, even though to walk the streets of their downtown with some of the towering and amazing architecture that they have there, you have the sense that this, is a, this really is a world city. Um, but it's still incredibly friendly, incredibly affordable, and the food there is
3: fantastic. It's so a cool I, city. Yeah, I really like Chicago. Kerry Diot. Well, you know, Edmonton is uh, is quite unique in its way. I've, I uh, went to university in Ottawa. Obviously, that city has the advantage of being the nation's capital. It's, it's well, well-funded. Um, it's 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 similar in ways to Edmonton though because it's a seat of government it's got beautiful parkland it's got a great cultural scene it's got better transit may I say because it went with busways instead of l r t and I took it as a as a kid back in the in the eighties and I was amazed at how quickly I could get from far flung places to uh places I wanted to get to um i uh, you know it's uh Edmonton is is the best city that uh, that I've lived in, but uh, Ottawa Ottawa has some similarities in in those things.
1: Question nine: What do you think Stephen Mandel's greatest initiatives were? Where did he fail?
3: Kerry Diot. Well, you know, I guess that's uh, that's definitely going to be uh, up to the I guess uh, the the legacy to see what what happens with it. I uh, I do feel that uh, people. Um, People like the building. There was we we've done a lot of building. I will, I will say that uh, we've uh, we spent a lot of money. Not me, all of it, for the th- last three years. But the the, the uh, getting the LRT to Century Park was important. I think uh, the spur line to Nate is important. It's fi- it's it's high speed uh, LRT. I think that those are accomplishments. I think that the uh, the the jury is still on out uh, is still out on the arena deal. We don't know what it's going to cost. I think it was a, a huge. Uh, we're taking out a big, big loan to help out a billionaire. I think the jury's out on that one. Um, and I know that as mayor, I think people are really thirsting for somebody who's listening. And I, I am listening to people. Karen Leibovitchi.
2: I, I believe uh, his greatest initiatives was in his ability to include council and to um, delegate out some of uh, what the mayor might have tried to do to counselors, so for instance, uh, as I said a little bit earlier, the affordable housing initiative, the homeless commission, uh, transforming Edmonton was one of the ones that I was involved with. The uh, uh, the uh, circumpolar initiative, the north and circumpolar initiative, uh, and and that also allowed us to work together as counselors, because sometimes we were a single lead. And other times, there were two or three of us that were involved. So I, I, uh, I really think that that's a model that um, has enabled us to move forward and has um, led to a lot of uh, the progress that we've made as, as a city. Uh, if, um, if I were to say um, what maybe did he not do as well, I would think it's, it's what's needed from now on a go-forward basis. And there's only so much you can do in nine years. Uh, we've set up a lot of committees. We've set up a lot of, there's a lot of reports. Uh, the Elevate Report, for instance, uh, if you, um, um, and, and many other groups. And we now have to pull them all together. And that goes back to some of my earlier comments around, uh, we've, we spent a lot of time in the physical infrastructure we've set up some of the, what we need on the social infrastructure side, we've now got to pull it all together. Mm. Uh, And uh, and I think that that's, there's only so much you can do in a term. A question from Twitter. What will you do as mayor to stand up
7: for the rights of post-secondary institutions in Edmonton?
2: Don Iverson. Well, I wouldn't
4: wait to, to be mayor to speak out, because I've spoken out before. As a matter of fact, on the day of the budget, uh, press asked me, they said, what's your reaction to the provincial budget? And I said, well, it's not a bad day for municipalities, but it's a really bad day for my friends in post-secondary. Because I used to work uh, around the university, um, uh, first for the Gateway and uh, and for campus media for many years. And then I worked for undergraduates in their government relations shop. And so I have a background in post-secondary policy. and." Uh, and funding and budgets and everything. I used to scrutinize the university's budget for a living. And um, so I understand that there's always places you can trim in an organization this size, but uh, a 7% cut when they were expecting a 2% increase is uh, uh, catastrophically destabilizing to an organization like the University of Alberta. And it's a real travesty because this is a university, and and all of our post-secondaries were sort of rising relative to their peers in the country and in North America, because the others had been cut uh, short-sightedly as well. Um, because post-secondary is where you get your brilliant labor force that's adaptable to the economy of the future, and it's where the innovation happens that's going to form the new companies and and the new um, solutions to social problems. I mean, this is where the thinking and a lot of the innovation happens. and uh, Or it's the capacity-building structures to allow industry to do that uh, innovation as well either way, it's indispensable. And so the cuts, I think, were were terribly short-sighted. And in particular, they're bad for Edmonton because post-secondary is such a large employer. It's such a large attractor for young people to come here. Uh, and people having a great experience here as university or college students is critical to attracting and retaining that long-term workforce for Edmonton. So on, on, a, on a short and long-term level, this is really, really tough for Edmonton. So um, as I said, I didn't wait to speak out until until now or until running for mayor. But, uh, but I've been a champion. I've been an advocate for post-secondary education. I founded something called the Edmonton City of Learners Initiative a couple of years ago to try to rally people in Edmonton from post-secondary and K to 12 and the library and the NGOs that do other kinds of early childhood learning and adult literacy work around this idea that Edmonton is a city of learners. People come here and they stay here partly because this is a great place to get some of the best public education in the world. And we need to stand up for that, and we need to fight for that. And as mayor, I absolutely will keep doing that. How? Well, a lot of what the mayor has to do is speak out when something bad is happening. But there are some specific things in, in the case of the cutbacks. Um, so, and Mayor Mandel was outspoken in his state of the city address, and uh, I might have chosen slightly different words, but I think I felt the same way he did that that day, and I was incredibly proud of him for speaking out um, the way that he did and drawing attention to this issue. I think... Um There are other things the city can do that are within our mandate. So, for example, uh, you know, I support continuing with the U-pass on the one hand, which is one of the things the city does to make um, living in Edmonton more attractive and more affordable and more convenient for uh, post-secondary students from a number of institutions. And just last night, there was a forum uh, uh, put on by a number of the student associations, and we talked a lot about student housing, and I think there are things the city can do uh, on surplus lands that we have, for example, at the airport redevelopment, to uh, support the building of more student housing, which will, uh, where there, you know, supply is needed for student housing, and that will help the whole rental market, because we badly need more rental housing in Edmonton, and student housing is rental housing. So I think there are the things that the city can do directly besides advocacy in order to ensure that Edmonton uh, uh, is a great climate for learners. And then I think uh, promoting Edmonton as a city of learners in a positive way in when we are attracting um, and, and recruiting people to come and work here, to, to raise their families here, to build their businesses here. I think if that's something our community rallies around more strongly, then, um, then over time the province is less likely to, um, uh, to, to take post-secondary in Edmonton for granted. Karen Leibovici.
2: I think there's lots more that we can do than we're doing right now as a city from simple initiatives such as uh, being part of the, the welcoming of the students that come to the city of Edmonton. Uh, when you look at, I believe it's over 100,000, hundred and twenty or 30,000 students uh, in the post-secondaries that are here in the city. We don't play much of a role in welcoming them. We also don't uh, work with our uh, the private sector, the Chamber of Commerce, to do something as simple as perhaps uh, putting forward um, a um a coupon booklet that would allow uh, students to get discounts at various areas. I know that some stores do that, but to do it in a more um, a systematic way, so that it's part of uh, a part of what we do to, as I said, welcome uh, the students that come to to the city. We also need to start to meet on a regular basis with the post-secondaries, and we haven't done that. Uh, we've had individual meetings with the U of A, for instance, uh, individual meetings with McCune University, um, and, uh, and also uh, with Nate and, and NorQuest. but to bring everyone together in a room and we can talk about what the aspirations are of each one of the post-secondaries as well as the City of Edmonton, and to bring together perhaps uh, the EEDC, our Economic Development Authority, as well as um, the the Chamber, I think would be very powerful. At the end of the day, what we need to do is to speak with one voice, and at the end of the day, um, Edmonton is renowned for um, its education system. And we can't let that slip through our fingers. Um, and I would be a strong advocate to, to the provincial government uh, to make sure that um, um, our post-secondaries are not harmed in, uh, in what they, they do so well.
0: What can be done to advocate for post-secondary institutions on the provincial level, the relationship between the mun- municipal level and the provincial?
2: Well, and, and that's where I think having a coalition that comes together that uh, speaks with one voice. Um, when you have uh, a strong coalition, including the alumni, so it was good to see that in this report that um, the alumni were involved as well, uh, it, it, um, it, we can put forward a, a very credible case to the provincial government as to why it's so important to proactively support post-secondaries, it's an economic driver, there's a return to the provincial treasuries, Um, we uh, are able to promote ourselves easier as well internationally, Uh, investment dollars flow into the city, research dollars flow into the city, those are all positives. Uh, And uh, uh, it's difficult to to understand why we would want to take away those positives. Uh, And I think sometimes it's a matter of presenting the case in a way that everyone can understand it and we can move forward towards a solution. I'm very much an individual that uh, looks at what the issues are and then always drives towards a solution. People make fun of the fact that uh, I get into the details. Well, part of getting to the details is so that we can develop the plan that would actually uh, end up in the realization of of uh, where we want to go.
3: Kerry Diot. Well, I had a meeting recently with your president, and we went through some of these very, very key points. And we, this is the pillar of the community, this university. And I will, as mayor, fight to ensure that it gets front and center. I will fight to see that uh, the, the, the budget the budget cuts come back I know the provinces in, in rough times and they're taking a lot of heat over those cuts and I think that they're going to come around and I will fight to make sure that uh, that people recognize this as a world-class university which it is and it's got to be on any on any trade mission that I go on or, or anything of that nature I will I will talk about the U of a as one of the pillars of, of this community uh, we are so lucky to have it here and it's and it's it's a it's a a giant thing that most cities only would would crave to have, but don't have it. Not Calgary, not many cities in, in this uh, in this country. It's it's a shining light. It's a gem, and we've got to to uh, continue to promote it, fight for it, and partner with it, and partner and, and, and keep some of these international students in Edmonton. It's uh, it's a gem.
0: Could we talk more specifically about what you would do if you were in office to support the interests of post-secondary institutions?
3: Well, it it is, just like... um just like any uh, of our, like the arts, for instance. Okay, that that's a big pillar of our of our community in Edmonton. So it's a it's a, it's a matter of supporting and and encouraging it. Obviously, everybody knows that that when it comes down to it, the province holds sway on uh, on the university. But also, I, I get along well with the with the province, regardless of what you what you think about the uh, the the Redford PCs or the Harper Tories. It's the only levels of government we have to deal with. Those are the parties in power, and I've made it a point to get to know these people. I've, I've made it a point to communicate with them. I think that it's one has to go in as a win-win. Uh, I know that in the past they felt quite uh, insulted by the current regime and, and by this by the city council. I don't think that you get more money or more cooperation from a government by insulting their officials, and I know for a fact that they're, some of them are still ticked off at, at some drive-bys that have happened. I, I think that we have to work with them. I, I can guarantee you right now that the, the province is trying to figure out a way to get some of these, these uh, uh, funding back to, to education. I would guarantee it because there is a lot of heat. And I know there's, there's uh, anger from, from the, uh, the public. So we need to figure out a win-win and, and keep this, this university uh, at the top of the heap. It's, it is one of our biggest employers, if nothing else, as well as just a generator of ideas and, and it's 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 an amazing place
1: break
0: this is the CJSR edition My name is Matt Herjie. In the last municipal election that took place in Edmonton in 2010, under 200,000 of the close to 600,000 eligible voters cast their ballot. That equates to a lowly 33.4 percent voter turnout, which begs the question, why are Edmontonians so apathetic towards municipal elections in this city? Enter a man uniquely situated to answer that very question.
8: Yes, my name is Joseph Ahoro. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science, and my research is in uh, democratic reform, the democratic deficit, civic engagement.
0: I recently sat down with Mr. Ahoro to get to the bottom of this apathy question. Our conversation began with a simple one. What are the causes of voter apathy in municipal elections in Edmonton?
8: yeah, it's a very interesting question to ask. I mean, the idea of a voter of voter apathy is widespread within the academic literature and is well studied uh, at national levels, but not necessarily at the municipal levels. And so I think it's an area where there's a lot of questions that we can pose. And as I was doing some research, there's only been real th- really three studies on election studies at the municipal level in terms of, uh, of disengagement uh, and apathy. And just to give you some background, at the national level, uh, there was a study done and a survey was done with non-voters, so they asked them, why did you not vote? And the vast majority, about 68%, uh, cited politicians and uh, parties and institutions. So they were looking at the behavior of those people and those institutions. Um, next was feeling this feel, a, a sense of meaninglessness to the election, uh, about 32, 33%. And the rest was about uh, voter apathy, about 40%, a lack of interest, so on and so forth. So we see here the biggest problem problem is with our institutions and our politicians, hmm. uh, in terms of why people do not vote. Um, now, at the, that's at the federal level. Uh, now what's going on at the municipal level, it's, it's rather different, because uh, unlike provincial and national elections, we don't have parties at the municipal level, at least not here uh, in Alberta. And I mean, my area of research is on political parties, and they serve as much as you as most people don't like them, they do serve a purpose, they do serve a political cue. Um, they're identifiable, they're in the media frequently, and people vote ideologically. Um, and so, people associate a party with an ideology. And so, that's how they structure their vote. And, and I, you know, I, before coming here, I graphed out the voter levels, uh, in Edmonton since 1945, and the only time it really dipped above 50 percent was, I think, during the 60s. And it's floated anywhere as low as 12 percent to 30 percent, and I think that's where we're going to hit 30 to 40 percent. So it's always been low. It's not a recent phenomenon. Um, But I think it's that lack of party structure who provide the information for voters of who to vote for um, that makes it hard for voters to kind of come to grips with the issues, understand what's at stake. And when you think about the money involved, uh, candidates running at the municipal level don't have a lot of money to be able to provide that information. So I think from looking at it from that perspective, uh, structurally, uh, voters lack that information. They don't have that structure in place to help inform them to go to the polls.
0: What could be done then to institutionalize those structures? Is it it a matter of spending more money or...?
8: Yeah, no, that's a good question. And um, I mean... You could take the most extreme case and look at Australia and institute mandatory voting, but I don't think many Canadians would feel very comfortable with that. Uh, I think people want to have the freedom to not vote and not feel compelled to enter into a system that they may or may not agree with, and so that's fair. Um, I think the history of money in politics is long and storied, and I don't think people would be agreeable to having more money in our politics. Um, you just look at the United States where there's the no cap to spending and it's just a barrage of information. I don't think Canadians want that either. Uh, for me, I think it's a Band-Aid solution to look at just remedying an increase in voter turnout. because elections come and go, and it's really that in-between period uh, that the deeper solutions uh, need to take place. And so I think for the long, long-term health of our democracy, there's got to be greater opportunities for citizens to be involved, uh, at least at the municipal level, to have a better understanding of what the issues are, um, what that means to them, and how that will be affected at the next, next election period.
0: So it would be a long-term process of engaging with, That's right. uh, with the citizens. That's right. Can we talk about other possible solutions then? Sure. Online voting comes up a lot as as a possible opportunity to make the voting process more streamlined and make it easier for people to just log on to their Mm -hmm. computer instead of uh, driving
8: to polling stations. Would that work? I think, again, that's another Band-Aid solution. I've uh, I've come to grapple with this question about uh, what the role of the Internet is with our democracy. And uh, there's a couple of schools of thought, and I tend to err on the side of caution. You know, maybe this will come back to haunt me in 50 years' time, and it it turns out to be all for naught, but there's something about the communal um, aspect of going to the polls physically. Um, you know, regardless of your opinion of the of the United States and Obama's campaign, there was something inspirational to see thousands and thousands of people lining up for for hours to uh, register their vote, um, and I'm worried that you know if people were to just sit at their computers uh it would be another aspect of what some have deemed clicktivism so it's this very quick um, engagement and then it's fading and it's gone and it's not long lasting and so i think that larger dialogue that larger discussion about the effect of the internet and our politics i think we need to really interrogate that i'm afraid that if we just, if, if you look at our behavior with the internet, everything is passing, everything's glancing, everything is, there's so much information. And if voting is just a part of that kind of workflow, uh, it doesn't really take root. Um, I mean, that the whole idea of going to a community and being a part of that, being with other people, uh, then you get a sense of the politics is more than about you, it's about a community. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think there is some value of trying to encourage ways, meaningful ways to get people out physically.
0: I guess if we're talking about long-term engagement, that is a way to engage with, an, uh, with a voter. That's right.
8: And so online voting, I, I, I would probably side on side so with a note, I'm skeptical, uh, because I'm, I'm worried that it would just be a part of this larger cultural shift of, uh, what some say, collectivism. Yeah. That uh, you think of the Kony campaign uh, maybe a year or so ago. People were, you know, really up up into it in social media, and then it faded. And if you try to ask them what that was all about, I'll bet you that they can't really remember. And so we have to be—I don't think we should put so much, um of our effort or think that that is the silver bullet to fix our democracy. Uh, there's deeper things that are going on that we need to be aware of. So let's talk about those sure. deeper things. Yeah, yeah um, if you look at, from the societal uh, aspect of things, you look at our generation uh, or the last few generations, there's been an increase in education, availability of information, and so people aren't dumb. People don't want to be taken for granted. And it's not surprising that almost 70 percent of people who decide not to vote have a real issue with politicians and parties and institutions. And so for the the advice I would give to any candidate is to not treat the voter as though they are uh, a voting bank. Uh, Treat them as though they are and they are well-educated, they're in tune, they're skeptical. Um, The literature that's produced out there needs to reflect that, and I think that's where uh, the first step needs to take place, is to recognize that the electorate is different. Uh, They're highly educated, they're skeptical, Um, they have easy access to information, they could fact-check if they want to, and uh, I think that is sort of the step in the right direction to addressing that issue. I'm interested in this freedom
0: to not vote item that you brought up. Sure. Because I feel like they're they're at tension with each other, this idea of uh, engaging with a democratic institution, being proud of the fact that we are a democracy, but then we want to hold on to that idea that... uh, we can choose not to take part in that, why do we value that so
8: much? I think it's just the, the freedom that people have to choose. Uh, I think that is uh, penultimate in what we consider our democracy. I'm not uh, overlooking the fact that people have fought for the franchise over the years. Uh, there's countries in this world that desire for a free and fair uh, elections. I just think what people are concerned about when they decide not to vote, at least some people, is that they're, it's a forced choice between candidates that they may or may not like, or parties that they may or may not like. I think it would be interesting if there was a choice of none of the above. You know, we have a lot of spoiled votes, we have a lot of people that decide not to vote, but we can't categorically figure out that number. And I think it would would be very compelling in terms of change of behavior if there was an option for none of the above. Would a not a vote—do you think a not a vote would increase voter turnout? I think so. I think it would be uh, a legitimate exercise of um, of democratic rights, of of democratic expression, uh, and it would be a true reflection of voter preference. Now, if that w- that may compel parties or politicians to, you know, change their change their approach and realize, look, I, I, I could very well lose to the none of the above. And so they have to start acting in a way that uh, is meaningful and honorable to the voter. Uh, the fact that there is no choice like that compels people to either not show up, uh, f- decide that it's not meaningless or that, it's me- that it is meaningless um, and choose to, to tune out. And I think over the long-term health of our democracy, that is an issue
0: young people are notoriously apathetic and i'm wondering if this stereotype uh, sort of matches with a reality in your opinion
8: yeah that's that's a good good question um, you know there're two two explanations behind that is the uh, life cycle effect and so some will say you know because you're young you're in school you're transient uh, you may not be able to gravitate to the issues that are that are that are open during a campaign. It's not until you start paying taxes uh, and you feel like you have a greater sense of community that you then become politically engaged. That's the life cycle explanation. Now, another explanation, uh, which I'm a little bit more in tune with, is the generational effect. That there's something very characteristic about this generation compared to past generations where young people now are voting less compared to their parents and then their parents. And that that non-voting behavior will project into non-voting behavior in the future, which is, you know, when you think about the implications of that, uh, very few people will be selecting uh, our political leaders. And so I think it's a bit of both. I think it's a bit of both effects. Um, But I But I think it's an overstatement to say that young people do not care about the politics. I think what's happening—and this is backed up by scholarship—is that uh, people are finding different ways to engage politically, maybe not through the traditional means of voting, not through the traditional means of joining a political party, but they may do it through uh, boycotting or bycotting. So people will choose to buy certain products, and that is in itself a political act. Uh, The choice of not participating politically is a political act. being able to do something on social media or retweeting or commenting on social media. Uh, Granted, that is fleeting, like I said before, but it's still a political act. So I think with young people these days, I think it's an overstatement to say that they are um, apathetic. I think they're just expressing it in different ways that isn't being fully captured through the traditional means of politics.
0: Considering the landscape of, of the 2013 municipal election so far to date, Uh, What are your thoughts about voter turnout on October 21st? Will it be higher or lower or uh, different in some way?
8: Yeah, I think it will be slightly higher, Um, you know, looking at the various reasons why election turnout is as it is, Um, one of which is the competitiveness of a race. I don't think it will break 50%. Uh, Traditionally, municipal elections are low. Like I had said before, they aren't structured around parties. I'm not proposing that we all of a sudden have a party system at uh, the municipal level, but you have to look at the value behind what's going on there. The fact that there's a vehicle to provide a lot of information uh, spurs out voter turnout. And so the candidates that are out there right now uh, will have to find a very clever way to get their information out to a lot of people in a short amount of time with very little resources. Uh, When you think about party financing at the provincial and federal levels, it's, it's astronomical, comparatively speaking. And so Municipal candidates don't have that uh, luxury, so with that said, I think the voter turnout will will t- still be relatively low. Uh, not through the candidates' faults. I mean. I always find it funny when people say, well, none of them visited my door. You know, when you think about how big Edmonton is and how many candidates there are, uh, it's virtually impossible to door knock within that short period of time. And so whether it's the use of the internet, uh, the clever use of social media, that might be the way to reach uh, voters. But again, I think the long term is, is once whoever gets into office needs to find ways in between that election period of time to engage with voters. Uh, for the next three to four years, so that when it does come up mm-hmm. to the next election, they haven 't forgotten that uh, that they know that what they are what they are doing in that intra inter election period is meaningful at that election time, and so that's um, i don 't expect it to be a high turnout, um, but there's certain explanations behind it. Uh, in 2010, the turnout
0: was something along the lines of 32. percent If we could play a game, would it be higher
8: than 40? I would say it's uh, probably just below 40, is my guess. But I mean, I'm not. I hope I'm wrong. I really do hope it's it's a larger turnout. Um, I think there's a lot of issues that are at stake, and uh, I think I think it would be. I would really like to see a stronger uh, turnout as an expression of interest in the issues, but I don't think that, that can happen during an election period of time. I think we really need to get, to find structural ways in between that period to get people to know th- what the issues are.
0: Are there any final thoughts that you want to leave us with?
8: Uh, yeah, again, my, my concern uh, is just the long-term health of our democracy. Uh, I want to see... Uh, Our political institutions reflect uh, what the citizens uh, are, which is well-educated, very critical, and um, I think treating people with dignity, treating them with respect as though that they know what they're talking about is the step in the right direction. I think that's the very least that I could ask for from our politicians. Um, And to give up some of that power that they hold on to and give some of the decision-making powers back to citizens in between, that is the best way, I think, for people to really understand what their democracy means to them. Um, When they know that what they think, what they prefer can have an effect, uh, that's when they feel that they have a stake in their democracy. Uh, And I think that's the way we need to go.
1: Return. Question 10. In light of the most recent debacle involving the vandalism of Edmonton's entrance signs, if Edmonton were to change its official slogan, what would you like it to be?
3: Kerry Diot. Well, that's a good question. I, I, I did, you know, although I don't uh, support vandalism, it was certainly done by a creative—some creative forces turning—having uh, some fun with the city of champions, including the French version the city of champions, champignons. Um, but— um, you know, I, I think that there's there is uh, room for there, there are room there's room for several slogans. It's it's not about a slogan. It's about a city. It's about a soul of a the city. There are a lot of people who hang on to the city of champions as meaning when our sports teams were in their full glory and winning Stanley Cups and Grey Cups. And then when when the uh, that terrible tornado hit, it was about how we came together as a city. And and we truly are champions of volunteerism. We are. I, what I love about Edmonton is that it's it's got so much going on in a big city way yet it's it's a small town in many ways. Like that, that we're willing to help out our neighbors. And you know, as a journalist, I remember at the time I wrote this uh, wrote this uh, a couple of um, uh, commemorative uh, magazines on that. Uh, the first one on the tornado, and we raised five hundred thousand dollars for the tornado relief effort. That's just that, that was just my small part along with the newspaper I worked for. So. I think that we have to we have to basically look at uh, having if you you know it's not about a slogan and if there's a new slogan out there that uh, becomes part of uh, becomes part of the uh, the uh, dialogue so be it you know make something Edmonton is a, is a good one it's uh, it's something that's being embraced by, by others but it doesn't necessarily mean we have to put the other one out to pasture and say it never happened. Don Iverson.
4: I think our slogan should be Edmonton. Period. <laughs> I think most slogans are a dime a dozen, and uh, I really like the spirit behind City of Champions because it didn't have anything to do with sports teams. It had to do with how Edmontonians rallied after the tornado in 1987. But the fact that most Edmontonians don't know that tells me that it's uh, unfortunately it's kind of lost its original authenticity. And so, um, I. Uh, people have talked about the new Make Something Edmonton initiative, and said, "Well, I don't want to put Make Something Edmonton on the signs uh, on the entrance to the city." And that's not what that's not what Make Something Edmonton's about. It's about a state of mind, about um, collaboration and mashup and mad. Uh, um, you know, an urban barn raising culture and putting what are you making and how can I help on the back of every business card for every city employee, because that should be our mindset. It's not about a tagline. And if we come up with a one in a million tagline that everyone can remember and goes, oh, that is that is exactly, that channels Edmonton perfectly, then we'll put it on the signs. But most taglines suck. And I think we're in the post-tagline era because of that. So I wouldn't want to put anything on the signs that isn't isn't just right. And I think Edmonton stands on its own. You know, Austin doesn't need a tagline anymore, Uh, Chicago, you can call it the Windy City. But you know, when you talk about the great cities of the world, just saying the name is the complete brand. You have a a series of images in your head, you have a feeling in your heart right away about what those places are. And we will have arrived where we need to be as a city when hearing the name Edmonton or seeing the name Edmonton on a sign or in print conveys everything you need to know about who we are and why this is one of the best places in the world to be.
2: Karen Libavici, City of Opportunities, City of Dreams, City of the Future. You know, the City of Champions is, is a great um, description of us as well, but uh, it, we need to um, move beyond that. Uh, and, um, I, you know, all the discussion around the branding, at the end of the day, it's, it's how we promote ourselves internationally, and uh, we'll figure out what the label will be, um, the Make Something Edmonton um, initiative is good because it's, it's talking about a cultural change and that's where we needed to go uh, uh, to change the culture, to get us talking about uh, you know, what, what the great things are here in the city, what we appreciate and, and what we're about. Uh, eventually we'll, we'll get to whatever the, the new brand is.
4: Bonus question, what is stopping Edmonton from being a world class city? Karen
2: Libavici. I think ourselves to some degree, uh, because we've been reluctant to um, move forward. At least that's the the perception that I get. Uh, Part of that also is that we don't work together. Um, We have a city vision, for instance, out to 2040, and. uh, that should be a vision that every executive that's going, that's going um, around the world, um, anyone who's visiting elsewhere around the world, any Edmontonian who's, who's going around the world, should almost have in their back pocket. So when someone says, you know, what is Edmonton about? Why do you live there? They can pull it up and say, these are the reasons why we live here, and this is uh, what our aspirations are as a city. So. It, again, I think the—I uh, believe the role of the mayor is to pull together all of the different groups and, um, and so that we can all move forward with that one voice. It sounds like that's very simple, but the reality is it, it's, it's something we haven't done.
3: Don Iverson. Well, I think
4: it's— it's a subtle point of language, but I actually, one of the worst cliches at City Hall is world class. And I, I know what the mayor meant when he said world class. And I use a slightly different word for it. I talk about being globally competitive. Because um, world class is kind of like, okay, we're world class now. We can kick, uh, kick up our heels and, and, and sit back and we're good now. But, you know, the Fringe didn't get to be globally competitive by resting on its laurels after 25 years when it became the biggest festival in the world, because there were other festivals out there going, oh, we need to compete with the Fringe. That's what the leadership looks like. And, And so you have to be constantly striving, right? And that's a competition, and it is global. So I think the sentiment's right, which is that we shouldn't just be measuring ourselves against Sherwood Park. Or against Calgary, we should be measuring ourselves against uh, the great, at least mid-sized cities of the world, because we're in competition for talent and investment with the whole world. And um, increasingly, you know, city building in the 21st century in Canada requires building great urban spaces. It requires great public transit. It requires great universities. It requires um, a culture of entrepreneurship and innovation. And I think Edmonton actually is on the path on each one of those things. And if we just can stay focused and seize the opportunity, then we can emerge. Because I think Edmonton is poised right now, um, but I also think that, that we're very, very underestimated, first and foremost by many Edmontonians, but also by people in um, in areas where opinions are formed, say in Toronto and in the... In the you know, dominant Canadian media, you don't get a lot of conversation about Edmonton. But I'm, I want to change that, and I will continue to be a passionate advocate and a strong voice for Edmonton. And I think that in the coming years, we're going to have a great story to tell. And if we can do the kind of city building that I'm advocating for, um, then I think if we do it right, no one's going to underestimate Edmonton
3: again. Kerry Diot. Well, I, I don't think uh, there's, there's anything stopping us. I truly think that we are world class. Uh, are we London? Are we New York? Um, personally, I'd rather live here. Uh, and I, I truly think that, that some of that has been a little bit overhype. hype I don't think that... Uh, you, you look at the number of people who are flooding into this province and this city, I don't think we're losing our best and our brightest, like a, a couple of my, you know, like one of my, my opponents says. I think they are staying here. I stayed here, as as did many. Um, I expected to stay only a couple of years and then move on to, to Vancouver or Toronto and work at the Toronto Star or the Vancouver Sun, I just realized this is hey this is this is where it's happening, and uh, we we just have to uh, we continue that path. We're we're one of the hottest uh, markets in the world, and that's something that uh, that people would kill for in other jurisdictions.
1: Question eleven. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with,
3: Karen Libavici?
2: Well, sure. Um, I think this election is a a great opportunity to put forward different ideas, different thoughts, um, and to generate discussion. And uh, in the past, the elections have had a 33 percent voter turnout. Uh, I'm anticipating that's going to be much higher. Um, people have uh, choices that are in front of them. Uh, the choice that I'm putting forward is, uh, uh, I believe, a positive choice. It's a choice that says that we need to continue our momentum, we need to take care of city business, and we also need to ensure that Edmonton is a home for all. Uh, and that um, if, you, if um, we want to ensure that Edmonton doesn't stall or fall behind, then uh, I'm that positive choice.
3: Kerry Diot. Well, I hope, you know, one thing that I really uh, am passionate about is I, I truly hope that people exercise their democratic right. There, there's a lot of activity on Twitter and a lot of people will, uh, you know, complain about things, but when it comes down to it, put put your thoughts into action and and, and uh, choose wisely. Do your research. I, uh, I hope that uh, whoever, whoever is elected in, in, in council or mayor, I, I think it's going to be me. I think our team is very solid. But I really, really hope that people get out and exercise that democratic right. Don Iverson. Oh, I think we've covered
4: it from stem to stern. But if people are looking for more information, um, my website uh, has not only got my policies and my thoughts about this election, it's got six years' worth of my record up there, thinking about all of the complex decisions that uh, our councils have had to to grapple with. So I try to be transparent and accountable through my website, uh, and that resource is there for people to help them make up their minds in advance of voting, which is on October 21st. End.
0: That's all the time we have left on this 2013 Edmonton election episode of the CJSR Edition. This week the program was produced by Talking into microphones and by me, Matt Hergie. We produced the show in the studios of CJSR FM88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Thank you very much today to Carrie Diot, Don Iveson, Karen Libavici, Joseph Ahoro, and Nora Myers.
1: You're welcome.
0: Remember, Election Day is this Monday, October 21st, 2013. Voting is a privilege. So go out and practice your democratic right. Head to the polls and mark an X for the candidate that you feel will be best able to represent you at City Council for the next three years. More information can be found at edmonton.ca. And after you've cast your vote, please consider subscribing to the CJSR Edition podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, why not write us a review? We'd love to hear your feedback. For CJSR FM 88.5, broadcasting in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and streaming around the world at cjsr.com, my name is Matt Herjie. Thank you very much for tuning in.